0: please don't just believe me, and just assume it's true, because I say Let the Bible be that which you test all things true. As we prepare to get into 1 Kings 17, it's roughly 860s, 870s BC. Egypt is dwindling into a vassal state of Nubia, Sudan. It'll do that completely by the 700s. Assyria has been vacillating since its rebirth through tiglath pileser I, for about 150 years now, uh, it will almost dwindle uh, until about 770 BC when a fish-bleached prophet shows up on this, on their, uh, at their capital and challenges in the new repenting and of course, is throne. Babylon will be prosperous until the 600s. China is still in feudal states. Rome won't be founded for another 75 years. Britain, we're here at a time of the Druids. They're stacking rocks right now completely unaware that later on people will be filling buses to take pictures of it, I'm sure It's about 175 years before the Celts arrive and Israel's is in the sarriest shape it's been in. Since the 990s BC of course uh, Solomon's divided heart is born the fruit now of the divided kingdom. The south the areas of Judah and Benjamin calling themselves Judah uh, through Solomon's son Rehoboam and of course the north the twelve either side the ten tribes that remain are going to be led through his commander, Yeroboam, whose sin is mentioned specifically more than anyone else's in Scripture. Yeroboam's sin is mentioned at least 22 times. How would you like to have that? Is the one thing they remember you for? Oh, you're the guy that made Israel sin that they keep comparing to. And really, if you get it, in the in the south, in the area of Judah, they keep comparing to David. That was their standard. In the north, they keep comparing to, its, in essence, its founder, if you will. And that's Yeroboam. And so you have this horrible foundation in the north for which then things just continue to decline through its 19 kings. In the south, on the other hand, well, there are going to be these kings, these decent kings uh, in the midst of it. We are now in uh, Ahab. He's the seventh king of this of the north. Ahab, he will actually be the seventh king of the north. However, he will actually enter into things during the third king of the south. And I think you can see that here. So as you have Solomon, his first son would have Boam, and then Abiyah, and then Atsa. Atza is our first decent king since David. Really, I mean Solomon may have started, so but he certainly didn't end. So, so if you do the math, that makes Atza son, grandson, great grandson, great great grandson David. That gives you an idea where we're at with this. And Atza was a reformer to some degree. Uh, he rules long enough to actually see from the time of Yeroboam all the way down to the time of uh, Ahav, Ahav's first couple of years. And he's a doozy. In the north, if you kind of look and see that scattered thing, there's been two murders, one suicide prior to King Ahab, and he's only the seventh king, which means only nearly half of the kings up to this point have died untimely. Uh, and there was one of the candidates murdered as well. And King Ahav, we know he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone before him. And I remind you, Both of these guys, Ahav, the son of Amri, and Asa, the king of Abiyah, were both sons of wicked kings, of wicked dads. And that's a really, kind of where we were last week, there was this comparison. Both had very wicked fathers. And yet, what God compares and contrasts before us is just because you have a wicked dad does not mean you have to be wicked yourself. And there is this whole visitation towards this concept of a generational curse, and yet the quote from it goes all the way back to where God says he visits the sin or the iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but they don't read the rest of the, the text, which says, to those that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, those that love me. And you understand, the moment you accept Jesus Christ, that generation thing is cut off completely. Now look at, your dad was an alcoholic, you've probably learned how to act like one, whether you were not. Mom, my dad was violent, I learned violence from him. And... Uh, that was definitely the way I learned how to solve problems when I was a kid, but when I gave my life to Jesus, God, by his great grace, has completely taken that away from me and i 'm so thankful my family has never seen that side of me now in all of this, King Ahab has, do- has done something through his father Amin, and that is that his father did a political marriage with the guy uh, with, well with the guy up north just north of him in the area of Tyre uh, to this day that 's the area of Lebanon uh, just north of Israel. And the guy that is actually the king at the time used to be the high priest, but he actually murdered Hiram's uh, successor, and in doing that the man who had actually helped David build a temple, and then the man who actually I'm sorry, helped David establish his own household and helped Solomon build a temple, was ultimately his family was murdered by this guy who was a high priest of all things. And it's this guy now that's the king, and it's his daughter that is married now to Amri's son, Ahav, we know her of course, is Jezebel who, by the way, what we're going to learn about her is employed 850 false prophets and went, goes ballistic to murder any of the prophets of God. All of that to say, that's kind of where we're at in things at this particular moment. And now we're in this situation where this man's going to step onto the scene. And I want to ask, when you hear the name Elijah, or Eliyahu, if you already say Israel, what comes to your mind? What do you know about him up to this point? Do you know anything from your own previous experience in Bible reading? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> know anything about him physically? We're going to get one thing about him physically. We'll see later on. Maybe, um, actually, it says he was a hairy guy. But I mean, He still might be bald, but he's definitely hairy with a leather belt. So I can't help but think, maybe, because we don't read that he's fat or thin, old or young, tall or short. So he could be Dan in that sense. Mm-hmm. Dan, in that sense, because Dan is a, he's a hairy guy. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, imagine Dan walking around with a leather belt. The term leather girdle is the idea, of course, of a sash, but it's still kind of a crazy thought in that sense. For which he'll be the precursor, of course, for John the Baptist. But it's prophesied that this guy's actually going to come back. What we do read is that Elijah will return. He does have make a quick visit, by the way. Does anyone remember when Elijah shows up at all in the New Testament? Oh, say it with confidence. You are right. In the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus sort of has a board meeting, if you will, with the representative of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Now, there's a rumor going around by Bible commentators because if you've read through the book of Revelation, there are two prophets who show up and they seem to be pretty lean and mean. One of them can call fire down from heaven and one of them can call all these plagues. The natural assumption, if you've read your Bible, is these two guys must be Moses and Elijah. By the way, we also haven't read that Elijah's ever died uh, in that sense. In a, it's appointed, and the man wants to die in the judgment. A little spoiler alert, he's going to get scooped up in a chariot. Uh, and so that's kind of a fun thing. Is there anything else you know about the guy? I mean, as far as any major event that he's ever done, is there any event that stands out with Elijah? He stands up against the prophets of Elijah. Excellent, yes. As a matter of fact, I love the fact that that becomes sort of the one thing we remember. I mean, there's certainly a lot of other really cool things leading up to when we're going to get there. But that kind of is sort of the apex of his career, if you will. As a matter of fact, shortly after that, he really kind of turns into a bit of a wuss. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But the reason I say that is, Elijah hasn't read the story. He doesn't know that's going to come. But you realize, what we're going to read tonight prepares us for, ultimately, that showdown. Because there's going to be some things that are going to seem a little... oh. It, I should say, logically, they seem a little a little illogical to prep them for something like that. Now, it is important to note as we start to look at this, one of the things we're going to see, and I'd like to pepper the meat before we cook it here, is he's the prophet who hears. I'd like you to consider the fact that though he's mentioned 93 times by name, his name means literally, Jehovah or Yevah is my God, which is a really good name in a time like this. And he's, of course, never, by the way, he speaks very... As far as we think of a prophet, he speaks very little prophecy foretelling, other than he actually kind of forecasts the weather, if you will. But he speaks primarily the one message you should expect from a prophet, and that is the message to challenge one to repent. The same message John the Baptist will speak. It is actually prophesied that will return in the book of Malachi, and it's actually one of my favorite texts, especially, I'll be honest, coming to this country seven years ago, because when it talks about the time of restoration that Elijah brings which we see, of course, is some form of great revival, he says he'll bring back or restore the heart of the fathers for their children and the children for their fathers. That tells me the state before he arrives is a state of a very fatherless community or country. And that one of the major ways you're going to see God move is to see the commitment of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. Something, by the way, one of the first things I noticed when I came here is this seems like a country without a father. And I'm not saying that because we have a queen. I'm saying that because I see that in culturally around me, so few men are actually, at, you know, really being father. Well, with that in mind, I remind you: in all of this, we've never met him before. If we were reading the, the Bible for the first time, the first time we see his name is right here in verse one. It says this: And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Echav. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Why don't we read around a few verses? Go ahead. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Sherith, which flows into the Jordan. It will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook which flows into the Jordan. The ravens the ravens brought in bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and they drank from the brook. In our six verses, our first six verses, get the idea how about strangers. First of all, we get, we get his name, Elijah, it's the first thing we read. Now the last thing we read, if you remember was how horrible the condition was back in Israel. And as things continued in their decline, and you have Ahav, who, by the way, is if it was a trivial matter to upset God already with what he was doing, marries this Jezebel. And all of that happens, we read, and Elijah. And is a very important word, because what that tells us is that this isn't a brand new idea. As Israel is in this horrible place of running from God, abandoning God, not just committing adultery with God, we're talking abandonment, the most beautiful thing takes place. Now, aren't you thankful that none of us are God? I mean, I'm just not saying thankfully you're not God for the responsibility, but think of the personality we would have when we're abandoned by someone that we love, or even theoretically, I pray it's only you. Would you think, well, what I really need to do is send somebody with a spine that's willing to tell the truth, to plead with them to come back, that's the difference between our God and us, if we're going to be honest. So the first thing we read is that this guy, his name is Elijah. By the way, in James, one of, I think James and I would be friends. James is the kind of guy who would punch you in the face with the truth and then let you bleed and heal. But you at least know where you stand. James talks about the fervent, effectual prayer. We know that. Uh, many of you are familiar with that verse, James 5.16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The very next thing he says is, for instance... Elijah was a man, Eliyahu was a man, just like ours, with a nature just like ours. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land or on the land for three years and six months, three and a half years. He tells us, Elijah, I want you to recognize, Elijah was not like you. He was actually quite like you. Elijah had the same passions, the same challenges, the same emotions, the same fears. We're going to see that. I mean, I I have it, young in my faith, my first thought of Elijah was kind of like a spiritual Samson. You know, he was just the kind of guy that just didn't have a He was invincible. And yet we find he's a bit spiritually bipolar because he's going to have this fantastic moment in a place, even to this day, that's called El Mubach, which literally means the place of burning on Mount Carmel. But then he's going to go and hide in a cave because a girl makes a threat. Oh, granted, she's the queen, but just the same. And we're going to see why that is. But notice, the first thing we read is Elijah, and then we read this about him. He's the Tishbite. Does anyone know what a Tishbite is? Does anyone know what a Tish is to be bitten? Nobody actually really knows what a Tishbite is. I mean, there are lots of people who are experts that of course speak with candor and some form of gravity, but nobody can speak with complete confidence. The closest you could come up with is this. There is one place... In all of Israel, that has a name similar, and the name is Disbe. And you could say that a person, remember, when you're an Ait, that means one of two things. It means that you are a descendant of an individual, or like a Levite, you're from the tribe of Levi, or you're from a place like Nazareth, you're a Nazarite. That would be the idea. To this day, in Israel, if they see you and call you a Christian, they'll call you a Nazarot, which means a Nazarene would be the idea. Now, uh, for what it's worth, Bethlehemite would be a better example. As Nazareth is actually more of a condition, uh, a vow. So there is this place called but The interesting thing about Tzippa is actually in under the uh, the auspice of Naphtali, the tribe of Naphtali. Does anyone know where the tribe of Naphtali, where their property is in Israel? It's in Galilee. Now I only find that interesting because if you remember in John seven fifty two the religious leaders are rebuking Nicodemus, and they search for yourself and see that no prophet has ever arisen from Galilee. By the way, Jonah clearly has come from Galilee. They should do their own homework. But if that is the case, if it really is a place that is from Galilee, which by the way, the most sort of popular prophet that there would be, the sort of person you put a stamp on, his name face on a stamp and say, there's our prophet, it would be this guy other than Moses. And if that's the case. If not, he's from some place and no one knows. But we do read he's of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Gilead, we do know where that is. That is today northern Jordan. So on the east side of the Jordan River. The uh, Allotted to uh, the half tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben. Now, this guy shows up and he somehow gets audience with the king. I have to remind you, this is the king we're talking about here. And by this time, it's been very clear. It's an extremely opulent throne he has. Now, the king is already dealing with a civil war. This whole second portion of nation was birthed in this civil war. How exactly easy do you think it is to go and approach a king? You know, you would have imagine at this point, wouldn't you think there's always intrigue in any civil war? You're sort of paranoid of anyone, even your closest friends, because anyone could turn out... To be your assassin your assassin, especially when two of the guys have already been murdered and one guy's committed suicide, it's already been sort of, if you will, protocol for that. But what we read is he shows up and he makes this statement As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then what we're going to read is God says, now get out, and then the guy runs away. Imagine what that would be like for the king. He's handling already an issue of the civil war. He's trying to unify his country, even though he's doing so through horrible means. His wife is employing 850 false prophets, and ultimately she's going to go mental, perhaps, after this. And this guy shows up out of nowhere that we've never met before, as if we should just know Elijah. Oh, it's Elijah though have never heard his name before, he shows up out of nowhere, kind of like Melchizedek, if you remember in the book of Genesis. And he sort of shows up and he goes, first of all, let me make two things clear. And it's only one statement he's going to make. At this point, if you think about it, he has a one-sentence ministry. Have you ever thought about that? It isn't like the guy's going to give a lengthy dissertation like, I mean, here I am. He makes one statement, and I get this. For an unrepentant king... The smaller the words, the shorter it is, the better you're off. I've learned this when you find somebody that's determined to be rebellious, you start by going to look at, let me inform you what you're doing is wrong. That's called correction. Then let me reinforce that. Do you need help getting out of this? Can we agree this is wrong? And then you get to that point of rebuke where you're laying out that ultimatum. Somewhere down the line in all of that, you realize as they keep trying to play, you have to just go to the, this is the one issue. That becomes the issue with Saul, David's predecessor. And here, it's one thing. Now, notice the two things, though, that Elijah knows before he actually gives this judgment call. Could you tell me the two things he could say in confidence before he actually proclaims this judgment? It's in a statement. That's to warn you. Yes. You need to know my God's alive. What's the other one? These are the two things Elijah banks on. My God is alive and I stand before him. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Now, a little grammar, I don't have to do that much, but it's important to help develop this. Amad is the word here for stand. It literally means to remain the stain. And it is in what's called the Cal perfect tense. Cal just means it's a statement of fact, first of all. Perfect means that it's it's a completely done deal. In other words, what he's saying is, I just want you know, as a fact, I stand before God. Always. And imagine if those two things became the first things that, you, that came to your heart before you had to say something you knew was uncomfortable to somebody. It's like, look, you need to recognize my God is alive. Not only is my God alive, I'm standing before me right now. And I want to do this right. He banks on these two statements and says them. There'll be no do or rain. Not just there'll be no do or rain until I say so. How long has he given us here? What's the, what is his time measure? Years. 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 That's not pleasant, is it? <laughs> now you're aware that we're in an agrarian culture, right? Do you know until a few years ago, Israel... Something that's roughly, almost exactly the same size as Wales, was the second largest exporter of citric fruit in the entire world. Did you know that? Yeah? The, th- the top three were Spain, America, because we have places like Texas, and, which by the way, I can't even tell you how fast that is. And Israel, this tiny little thing. Unbelievable how fruitful the land is there. And you live off of the rain. And without the rain, everybody starves. So understand, this is a death sentence unless something changes. So he's like, look at As my God lives, I am as sure about this as I am about the one thing I know that's a fact, that's my God is alive and I stand before him now. And because of that, you need to know, it is not going to rain for years until I say so. And then you can see him go, and he just runs away. And if you were the king, what would you do? You'd go, what the heck was that? Okay, this is, you know, and you have to understand, of course, kings uh, do crazy things to be entertained. They tend to hire madmen. By the way, we have all kinds of beautiful records of that here in England, of hiring people. That, By the way, some people are mad in the sense that they're just so crazy that you just have to, you know. People stare at that anywhere when you're by a bus stop. <laughs> and then there are men who are just brilliant, brilliant enough to act weird. They're like jesters, court jesters. The is traditionally the jester is the smartest person in the court. Are you aware of that? Uh, the person who builds on a lot of Shakespeare, he really spends a lot of time trying to play that role of the idea that the guy's quick-witted and he's really quick with his with his mind. Anyways, all of that said, notice he says, "There shall not be this except at my word." And you need to know that becomes the key. This idea of the word, specifically because he is the prophet who listens. And we're going to find that everything about him is about the fact that God said it, so I'm going to tell you, because he told me to tell you. And I'm going to listen, because that's the way it works. That's when we sang the song we sang. Um, when we do that big showdown in 1 Kings 18, where he stands on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, it'll say this in verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known to you this day that you are God in Israel and that I your servant and that I'm your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. One thing you're going to see constant with him is that he is going to be a guy that says, you told me to do it and I've been listening. And what I love about this is that Elijah teaches us how to listen to God. And I'll be honest We're really not good at that anymore. We're good at hearing. And hearing and listening are two very different things. My wife is great at listening. She's not necessarily... um, Well, I can tell you this. If any of you sat down and wanted to talk to her, she'd be all yours and she'd be listening. But if she and I are at a restaurant somewhere, or pretty much any public place... She has this like bizarre radar to go and find the most interesting conversation, which is seldom the one at our table. And you know, so I mean traditionally I've learned this after being married to that beautiful woman for twenty-seven years. I've learned to be quiet and let her find it. So I'm kind of there and you know, it just finds it great to be here. And she like, Can you believe that person said that? And I'm like, I there's four hundred people in this room. I don't know which person is that person. And just, I have no idea what they said. The way he talked to his children was so mean. Not like looking for children. Are there children in this room, you know. It's I mean because she could just hear, and you kind of know that when you're talking to someone and you have that weird moment where you're kind of doing the dance and you're kind of the feel around, where is this person genuinely going to to listen or are they going to hear at this moment? And if they're kind of you kind of start talking and they start pulling off and they're texting and they're like yeah, and they're doing that oh, oh, yeah yeah yeah. You know, you know they're hearing, but they're not listening. Now, we kind of got this multitasker, or mindset. But I find it interesting. Jesus makes really clear, and by the way, for what it's worth, this idea of hearing of God's Word, 1st Kings 17, verses 2, 5, 8, 15, 16, and 24 all mention it. Verses, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 and 31. Of course, 36 has been quoted. Uh, chapter 19, verses 9 and 13 all are constantly making mention. God is speaking and he's listening. In the New Testament, Jesus makes this quote that if anybody hears his word and believes in him sent me has everlasting life. John five twenty-four. And the word hear there is what you may remember uh, once it's told, the word akoul We get the word acoustic from it. Acoustic in a akuo simply means, in essence, a conscious effort. To, to listen versus just to hear. Jesus in chapter 8, when Jesus is rebuking the religious leader, says, why don't you understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Now, understanding is, you know what you don't understand? Because you're really not listening. You ever actually send someone on something and they hear a few words and that's enough of them for to go and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! wait a minute. you got to listen to the details because if you don't, this isn't really ever really going to get done. And it's going to be a bigger mess for me to clean up. And Jesus is like, you know why you actually will not understand? Because you're not really listening. That's the problem. And he says then, four verses later in chapter 8, verse 47, he was of God, hears God's words. Therefore, you don't hear it because you're not of God. Imagine he's like, did you listen to that? thing? John says it this way in 1 John as he reviews that concept. Same guy who wrote that as he's recording it. As John speaks about the children of the devil and the children of God, in 1 John 4, 5, he says, they're of the world. Therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. Oh, We are of, the, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now understand, here it isn't like, you know, if you want to see the ultimate litmus test, let a person of God speak, and let's see if anyone goes, I don't hear anything. Because obviously, that's not the case. It isn't like there's some kind of weird thing going on where it's like only the chosen are actually hearing the sound. It's whether you're making a choice to actually do something with it. And you realize there are a lot of... And what we're going to find with the prophets of Baal, for instance, if you actually did this, and I challenge you to do this, do a historical search on them. They have all kinds of things they were known for doing, including speaking in tongues, for what it's worth. I didn't make that up. The whole idea of it is they had all kinds of spiritual experiences, But a spiritual experience in and of itself is no end to anything. The same way that a relationship cannot be built on a physical experience. There has to be more than that or you're really not knowing the individual at all. Well, fascinating as it is, do you remember the one thing Jesus calls his disciples to do first? The simplest thing. He calls them to follow him. Follow me, he says. Whether that be to Philip and Philip finds Nathanael. Whether it be to the four fishermen. What's interesting to me his, Jesus would say that in John 8:12, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, under the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The word follow is the word akulutheho. Akulutheho, the root word is akul. In other words, you cannot follow if you will not listen. It's more than just looking. It is listening. And the psalmist knew that when he said, Nevertheless, you were always with me. You take me by my right hand. And you lead me with your counsel. And afterwards, receive me the glory. Well, and I ask myself, do I ever even quiet myself enough to really listen? You know, we want God to speak, but then our heads so chucked full of uh, headphones and noises, that even if God had to speak, he'd have to shout. And I've learned this. God will never shout if he can whisper. And if God is to shout, it's never pretty. As I get older, doesn't say I've this. I've had noise canceling headphones. Some of you probably have those as well. The idea of that is that if you know, it's a simple thing. There's a sound wave, and it just really sends the opposite sound wave. And the idea is that they cancel each other out. So it has to record the sound that it's hearing and try to flip that. It's called the phase. Flip the phase of the sound that's supposed to silence it. The idea of it, so that when you listen to your music, you're not competing with all the outside noises. But I found myself these days turning on my headphones and putting nothing on them, just to try to cancel the noise around me. And go, all right, God, I'm really just trying to get quiet before you. It used to be my Jeep. That was my prayer time. I would, you know, I'd go on these long drives and I would just turn off everything, and I would just, all right, God, I'm ready to hear you. Now I have this really cool spot by a church in Greenwich that I get to take this walk and it's a, I love the fact that it's one place quiet enough. Greenwich is for the most part. I can get to this place and just be like, all right, Lauren, I need to hear you. And I'm purposely quieting myself to hear you. You think that in your relationship with, with God, do you feel like if you stop to listen for a moment that all you would have is rebuke If so, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your father, but that doesn't sound like a healthy one. A lot of what a father does is encourage and affirm as well. Unless, of course, you're in rebellion, in which case you really do need to be here. That kind of thing. And that was the case with Saul. When Saul stopped hearing from God and the Philistines encroached upon him, Saul actually went and even got a medium to go and call up Samuel from the dead. Samuel's simple response is, you know, God's already spoken to you and you're not listening because he'd given you your P45 and you should have stepped off the throne a long time ago and you were not stepping off the throne. So why would he want to tell you something new when you're not willing to do what, obey the stuff he's already told you? Well, the rest of it picks up, but I have to. we have to start with that. Verse 2, notice it says, the word of the Lord came to him. So here he is, the word of the Lord told him, and he's like, all right, it's not going to rain for years unless I say so. And then the word of the Lord comes to him again and it says, no, get out and go hide. And the first place that we see is a place called Kharit. That's a lot harder to say than the way, than Sharit if you French, or Jarit if you're not. But the word Kharit means, by the way, to cut. And it really means, in essence, to chisel. And what we'll find are the two places that he goes to are going to be two things in preparation for this great showdown that we're going to see in chapter 18. And there will be a place cutting in our lives. A place where God really wants to carve out of you or off from you the stuff that is just never going to reconcile to being a Christian. When we first gave our life to the Lord, we were just a big chunk. and We were like, God, do make me something beautiful. And you became this art project. I remind you, this is the same God who invented the Northern Lights. The same God who flung the stars into space. And the Hubble telescope is still exploring in exploring discovering the colors that seem like are unimaginable until you see them in space. Or these crazy little creatures that are so deep in the sea that anything gets crushed if you get deep enough to see them, but they're the coolest strangers. I love shows like that where it's like, you know, these are like jellyfish that look like marquees with the lights going around and all that stuff that, you know, we've caught up with in the last 10 years, but they've been doing it forever. And... You know, that or did you ever see the one that's kind of like a little dangling light in the dark and it's like teeth are like, at the end of it. I'm thinking, how cool is God to invent this stuff? And I think, and then I'm like, OK, God, I gotta hand you my life and make it something beautiful. And God goes, all right. And he starts going, and he starts carving off the edges. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, maybe something beautiful. He goes, well, that part just doesn't work. That part just, that part goes. And you're like, you couldn't just take that and make it pretty? God's like, it's dead. That's dead stuff. Dead stuff has to go.
1: And I had to learn
0: this with my marriage, to be honest, before I actually understood it with the Lord. You see, this concept came to me beforehand, and I think, I could thank Disney and others for it, but it's like, like I was this like blue circle, and my wife was like this red circle. And what was going to happen is that God was just going to push us lovingly together with like, Lionel Richie playing in the background. Let's read again. And then we become like this beautiful purple circle. But there is a problem with that. And that is that what what God does is he pushes this together and then he carves off all of this because this is a single us that doesn't marry well. And that part actually has to die. Our real marriage is two deaths and one resurrection. And I realize that's my whole walk with Christ. It's like I want to drag all these things over and God goes to be honest we need to let that die. Because I have a whole resurrected thing that you'll never see until you let that die first. Like that takes real faith. And the reason I say that is he's at his place of cutting. David, that was the wilderness of Judah. Moses, that was the wilderness of uh, the Midian desert. But for him it's the the place of cutting. And it's just like I want you to go there. And he goes, you go into a brook. If it's a brook, what is the one thing you know that's going to be there if it's a brook? Water. Which is kind of important because remember what his judgment was. He gives the forecast. There will be, it'll be sunny with no rain until I say so, for years. And so going to a brook sounds like a really good idea, doesn't it? Another place, no one's totally sure where it is. Can there? Those that believe it's sort of a winter torrent that kind of comes at, near Beth which is in the south. I'll be honest, the one thing we know it's on the other side of the Jordan. And it flows into the Jordan. So it runs somewhere from Mount Ephraim would be the idea, kind of roughly that area between Bethel and Jericho, roughly eight miles from Jerusalem, somewhere around there. That's kind of what the people are genuinely thinking. But it says, and it'll be, that you'll drink from the brook there, as I've commanded the ravens to feed you. Stop. Has anyone ever thought about that? Does anyone know what a raven is? Yes, you're right. As one of the first things we know is Leviticus 11. Don't eat that. You can't actually eat the bird. Because that's unclean according to Levitical law. Deuteronomy 4, by the way, reiterates that. Well, what else do we know about a raven? What kind of bird is it? Is it a vegetarian? Is it a hunter? Is it a scavenger? Scavenger. Okay, yeah. That's a really neat thought. So let's flesh that out for a second. What other scavenger birds are there out there? Oh, it's my first thought. Vultures. And I've got to be honest. If God really wanted to invent an ugly bird, he did a fantastic job with a vulture. Now maybe you love vultures. Forgive me, I don't mean to criticize. But I mean I mean it hangs around dead things, and it it doesn't really look entirely out of place. I mean if you put a toucan there you would kinda of go, Well, oh, just seems kind of weird. I mean it's cool, beautiful, you know colorful thing. And that thing looks kind of like it should be around uh, zombie apocalypse. <laughs> there are eight species of ravens in, uh, in Israel to this day. They all see, None of them seem to have gone extinct. Uh, one of the things we kind of know about ravens is they're foreboding and they tend to, even to this day we have people like transcendental pessimists like a ground hoe, who does a whole thing on it because they're kind of spooky because, you know, if the ravens are around Chances are something's either dead or dying. Now imagine, Hugo, I'm going to have you, okay? I want you to go and you're going to run and you're going to go talk to the Prime Minister. So go run in there really quickly because that'll be a good idea. And, and don't say a lot. You know, and it's just great because the last French guy that kind of ran in there wasn't so good. But uh, run into Parliament, sorry bro. and uh, And then I want you to run in and say, okay, here's the deal. There's going to be no writing. For years until I say so. Then run out. I want you to go hide at a place, and I would, and the place that you hide, you're, there's going to be door, There'll be water, because remember, you're talking drought, so that's kind of a really good thing. Uh, but then I'm going to actually have meat sent to you, and you're like, yes, meat. That's a great idea. He goes, well, uh, I want to make clear that it's like a scavenger nasty thing that's going to be bringing it, and you're like, okay, great. And twice a day, it's in, he's going to show up and do that. Now, please note, in Deuteronomy 11, 17, God makes really clear that the rain and the lack thereof is a direct result of the obedience of God's people. God never said, ever, that the rain or the lack thereof would be because of the wickedness of the wicked. It's like you should expect the wicked to be wicked, but we should expect God's people to be holy. When people start talking about global warming or global cooling, you know, it's amazing because I think we were heading into an ice age back in my day and that was actually well, well, well after the, the one that they say And now of course it's all heating up and we're losing our polar caps and whatever. With all of that being said and it's, if there'd be anyone to blame for it, as sad as it is, it would be God's people. Because God's provision and His blessing on the entire world in one way or another, sits upon the obedience of God's people, and so, and what it tells us is that Elijah was a jealous man. He was jealous for, he was jealous with God's heart for God's people. He wasn't jealous of God's people. He was jealous for them. Very different thing. When you're jealous of someone, what that means is they have something you want. When you're jealous for them, they're the thing. That's why God is jealous for his people. Because the one thing he wants is you. He goes, don't expect me to bless you in your disobedience. And dare we say it, God really does want you miserable when you're running from him. Because it's that misery that makes you turn around. And if that's what it takes, why would God want to bless you if it doesn't let you come back? But here's the weirdest part about this, and we'll get to our last part of this text. So he goes to this place and there's a brook and there's a raven or ravens. Now, how long are we expecting it not to rain? Well, from his word, we would expect it to be years. Now, ultimately, because we've already been foretold a bit, it'll be three and a half. Interesting, same time is the great tribulation, tribulations. But that is a long time to be hiding under a brook. So how long before you give the birds names? <laughs> or is it just me? It would be the third day and we're already naming things. Blackie, Tarface, you know. I mean, they're, they're really jet black birds. But OK, the first time they bring me, now it doesn't even tell us what kind of flesh. It doesn't tell us, you know, whether it was fresh or not, you know, but he's like, look at, they're going to bring some stuff here. And it tells us, by the way, in verse six, that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Now, where, where did they get the bread from? They didn't just bring grain. They brought bread. It's a weird thought. So you know what he's getting? He's getting sandwiches. You think about it. These sandwiches for breakfast, sandwiches for for dinner, twice a day. Now the first couple times, you get it. Do you smell it? Do you look at it? I I would cook it again. This you know, it doesn't. By the way, when it says they brought him, does it tell us how they brought it to them? Was it on a plate? Was it carried on their claws? Was it in their beak? We don't know. But do any of them sound good enough for you to go? oh Yeah, piecemeal is great. But by the third day, there's here's the crazy part. You're gonna hear the ravens before you see them. That's one thing about ravens; they have a very large wingspan, all of the species. By the third day, when you hear that coming, it would encourage you. It would for me, because it means food's coming. You're waking up in the morning and you're. And you're like, oh cool, breakfast is coming. You know? And it's like, but what's the other thing you would constantly hear? Where is he near? Is there a brook? There's a sound of a brook, isn't there? Would that bring you comfort? Now wouldn't it make sense at this moment? <laughs> because the whole world around you. There's a disobedience around you that needs to be addressed. And by the way, it's God's people we're talking about here. And this disobedience around you is getting addressed, and you know this. It's going to get really, really bad before it gets better. But hey, you're good. Close your eyes. Yep, yeah, I'm good. This is the brook. I can keep hearing the brook. And that's a constant reminder that God's got me tucked away safe even in the midst of that. Yeah, they're going to suffer, but maybe it'll bring an friends. I don't need to repent, Elijah speaking. I don't need to repent. I mean, look, I'm, I'm obeying, I'm hearing the voice of God, I'm obeying the voice of God. It's a good thing. But here's the thing. How long is Elijah going to be at that brook? Until God tells him otherwise. He's waiting for the next word. Does that make sense? Up to this point, he's heard one thing, well, he's heard two things. One is, say this, and the second is, now get out. And go hide here. And years, years have come. In those years, we don't have any record that God has said anything to him. Do you obey God and stay faithful when you're not hearing it like it used to? I remind you, Elijah's obedient here. God's silence. God's silence is coming though he's being obedient. But he can still hear the ravens. He can still hear the brook. And of the two, the one that would be constantly encouraging for me would be the brook. And the reason is the one thing that was pronounced as judgment was drought and I'm constantly seeing here that it's not. Does that make sense? And I was really good with that until verse 7. Verse 7, it says, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up. Why? Because there had been no rain in the land. Of course. Why was there no rain in the land? Because the people were disobedient. And this is where it gets really rough. This is where you, to me, this makes Elijah a greater hero than even this situation in Karamah. And to be honest, it took the last few years for me to really get this.
1: Because he's being obedient.
0: And is not one of the greatest tests of your faith? To me, the greatest tests of faith are time and when you don't know if you're hearing them right now. I wonder how many times Elijah said, what do I do? And he hears nothing. God, well, when are we going to go? He hears nothing. Well, do I change anything? What do I change? Nothing. Do you ever wonder if Elijah went and said, well, what am I doing wrong? I mean, perhaps forgive me for sort of projecting myself into it, but I think all of those things would happen, if we were honest, if we're there at the brook, and something really starts happening. Now, I don't know whether the ravens are coming or not anymore. We don't read one way or the other. What we do read, though, is that somewhere that big, fat, bubbling brook gets quieter and quieter and quieter. The thing that reminds you of God's great faithfulness is down to this thing where it's a trickle And then it's like I mean and you still have to drink. And somewhere down the line you're scooping mud, trying to get water out of it, right? Oh my god. What are you doing? You know what happens when the brook gets smaller? You learn to listen more. You have to listen harder. Those are anyone ever tell you things like that? It's like look harder. How do you look harder?
1: Right?
0: Like, still can't find it. But I get the idea because he is a prophet who's been listening, there's this really weird place. He's at a place where he's going to die unless God does something. I mean, even the sweet provision of God at this moment is dried up. And this was all because he was faithful. There's no part of this where God's ever going to go, you know, Elijah, if you would have said the second sentence, you wouldn't be in this position. Nowhere in this is there disobedience. Now, maybe, maybe the ravens are still coming, and he's like, hey, when you come tonight, could you bring really juicy meat? You know, where would you go with it? He's like, look at nowhere in this do we read that he's complaining, by the way. He is gonna to get to this place later on where he's like, God, just kill me now. He's gonna be at a point where he's totally depressed and suicidal. And yet not here, at least that we have recorded. So he's like, alright, God. I'm here. I'm here because you told me. I've said what you told me to say. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. And as I wait, the brook gets smaller. I wait, the brook gets smaller. And I wait, and the brook gets, gets smaller. All right, Lord, what are we doing? And at this point, God can whisper the smallest whisper, and I'm sure He's going to hear it. And I wonder how many times in that you're like, God, oh, is that you? Is that you? Is that in the wind? Do I hear that? Do I hear that in you? and a tumbling rock. And I wonder if somewhere you all of that as he starts to emaciate, if the other birds start coming around and you're like, hmm, this is a four sign. I wonder if there's some other prophet that's going to be bringing my flesh to him to feed him. Verse 8. I'm going to go this far because I can't just leave us there, can I? Then the word of the Lord came to him soon arise and go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon stop Sidon is not Israeli territory Sidon is today Lebanon what's really interesting is Tyre and Sidon do you know who rules Tyre and Sidon Jezebel's dad what a weird place to go Go to Sidon and dwell there. Because I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Would it be easier for you to take food from a raven or a widow? I'm actually gonna go with Raven. Because I have no moral objection. I mean I may have a you know culinary <laughs> objection to it. I'm like, wait a minute. A widow? You want me to leave Israel? And you want me to go north to this place where a woman who has no son you're going to go there? Wait a minute, that's not it. A widow has no husband. And she's going she's gonna to take care of me. We don't, again, I remind you, we don't read how old or young this guy is. When they ask, when they have asked later, what was this guy like? They didn't say fat guy, thin guy, or young guy, old guy. Two things we get, a lot of hair and a belt. That's all you get. A leather one. Remember what that first one, the karit? do you remember what that meant? Yeah, the chisel to cut. The brook is where the cutting took place. Zerephath means refinery. It's the place where you go to burn out the impurities. He's going to go there. You know one of the hardest things is to receive ministry. Maybe that's not your case, but it is for me. It is a conscious effort even to ask for help. I just like to do it myself, not because, not even because I'm sort of so pushy that I just it has to be done my way. I just, first of all, really love serving the Lord, and second, I I hate to feel like I'm putting someone out. It's still a humbling thing, and to be honest, it really is. But it boils down it boils down to pride. I spent my whole life before Christ having to do it myself, so why in the world would I going you know, bring it in now? And the Lord's like, humble yourself and receive the ministry you need. That's a very humbling thing. I mean, I have really fantastic young men that I can lean on, but it's a conscious effort to do that anytime. And afterwards, I have to pray, All right? God, don't let me, you know. That's kind of like don't let me not enjoy the fact that they're serving. You know, I mean, it seems like defeating the purpose. I think they wouldn't be blessed by the fact that it's. And he's like, I'm actually going to go and have you're going to go somewhere because I'm going to have someone serve you. <laughs> what? Yeah, but it's not going to be a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be somebody you would expect. It's somebody that you would think needs the greatest service. What we'll find next week, she's going to go and make her last supper and go die. We're going to go make this last meal and die, me and my son. And that's why he's are going to now hear this. She's going to call God, Elijah's God. She knows he exists. And I wonder, somewhere, she is also experiencing the drought. This famine isn't just in Israel. This famine's going way up north as well. And she's suffering from it. She knows what it's like for the brook to dry. And she's like, it's done. We're done. We're dead. Sorry, son. At least we'll die fed with one last meal. And he has to ask her the craziest thing. He has to ask her... Well, before you make that meal, could you make me something? Could you imagine having the audacity to ask that? It's like, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm about to make this last meal and die from (laughs) hunger, and you ask him for a cake? And you realize there is somebody in the heart of Jezebel's territory that's still trying to, one way or another, trying to figure out which God is real. And God's going to send this guy to do so of all the guys if you will the prince of prophets to go there and he's going to have more than likely travel over 100 200 miles to get there or well, roughly 120 miles to get there and he's going to have to do that by foot after waiting for the brook to dry out and all of this is preparation for this amazing showdown that he's going to do where well, he's going to have to stand toe to toe and be able to say my God is real but I remind you the two things that he knows is that my God is alive and I stand before him. I'm still with him. Would well, that be weird when things start drying up? You're like, wait a minute. Oh, my God's still alive. I don't doubt that. But you being with me, it could be a little harder to, to gather at a moment like this. But it is the case. But you know what else I think is going to happen in this? I think Elijah is going to get compassion for the sinner. Because somewhere down in the line, let's face it, if he lived at that brook, but everyone else died of thirst, would I like, serve him right? This is all in a judgment. Until he got thirsty himself. And I was like, wow, those people are really suffering. And I wonder how long before Elijah prayed for them to repent. Versus, just God, just get them. Just go get them. They're wicked. Let's start over. Now, I don't know. I'm reading into it. Forgive me for that. But if it were me, I could tell you that would be the case where I'd be like, look at, them. Look at how disobedient they are. And then somewhere down there and you're like, oh so this is what it really means to be this thirsty okay God would you please bring the rain now for all of us and God's like well before we do any of that we have a couple more things to work out first and I need to take you from the place of cutting to the refinery because I'm going to make you something beautiful it's not just about chiseling the nasty things on the outside it's about purifying the things on the end. and you know what? interesting of all the places he's going to do is he's going to do it here Ultimately, that's where we'll go next week, God willing. But let's supply it for a moment before we pray. Now, maybe you're in a point right now where you're watching God's great grace and blessing. And you're watching Him do miraculous things. And you're seeing that as God's great grace. And you're living in a place of great abundance. Well, praise the Lord. Might I just say stay obedient? And might I say stay listening? Because sometimes the easiest thing to do when you have abundance is stop listening because you feel like you have something to rest on. That doesn't last. I can take it all the way in a breath. But what if you're on the other side of that? And you expect an ocean, and right now you're kind of watching a brook dry up? You're like, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing wrong? And the most frustrating thing is you're hearing nothing. When you ask, God, what, am I, what should I do different? And do you know why you hear nothing? Because God is answering. Well, what do I do different? All I hear is nothing, God. It's like, connect your dots. Don't change anything. Just wait. But wait. Wait for what? It's like, don't overlook the brook as long as you have it. And don't overlook the ravens. That's the strangest way to get your meal. I won't grant you that. But at least I brought something unclean so you won't eat the bird. That's wise. Do you trust me now? God, it's been a month. I mean, I've got my brook. I've got my sandwiches. I can hear them. But how long are we going to wait? Oh, wait a minute. I said years. Year two comes around. We're at the plural now. Good enough for me. I don't know where in all of this time. But somewhere in all of this, he's got to get real thirsty himself. And <clears throat> God is doing a fantastic work in this. But it is not one that Elijah would volunteer for. It's no one we can volunteer for. Because it's so easy as a Christian to think a dry moment must be because I'm being disobedient. And maybe in that moment what he's really doing is he's birthing compassion for the lost for the sinner for the rebellious and strengthening our backbone for when the challenge is really going to come and he's like then I'm going to do something really crazy I'm going to have you, I'm going to have somebody provide for you that you thought ravens were weird wait till you see this next thing <clears throat> and you need to well you need to trust me on this It's interesting because one of the comments that were made about Lebanon was how dark the people were. And to be honest, they're actually, because they're traditionally Syrian, which means they're Semite. they're actually from the same son of Noah as Israelis because when they're talking about being anti-Semitic, it comes from Shem. So being anti-Semitic would mean you'd speak against them as well uh, versus Egyptians who actually came from Ham. It's probably why it's so But when uh, the reason they would say that people seem so dark it was because the ground was so white. And the name Lebanon, Leban, like Laban, means white. So this, you know, Lebanon means white. Whiteness, literally. And I just think it's interesting because what an Israeli would think of a, a person from that area would be that they would be very dark-skinned. Even though traditionally they're not much darker by any means than the generals. Right? The reason I say that is Is that he went from this thing that was pitch black, giving him food, to something that was darker skinned than him, and I don't know. And again, I'm just rolling the concepts in my mind, is it something he would have had to get over? I really don't know. Definitely, the one person that I know that he knows, that is of that culture, is Jezebel, and that's a real terrible representative of those people. And imagine going, what if, you know, you know, their whole life you've been picked on by a particular race of people. And it's like, well, I'm going to send you to a widow of that race and she's going to take care of you. That would be really weird. But man, what God is doing in this. Well, my prayers if you are at that place where it is dry and it really is out of obedience and you're not hearing like you'd like to hear, that God would increase our faith tonight. And he would encourage you in this. He knew who was going to be here and who wasn't tonight. Let's face it, there are weeks that we have this thing and it's a lot more of a big and lambastic thing and there are weeks where God says, this is what we're going to do tonight. And to be honest, I don't know if we could have given this message in that setting. Because if we really are people who are to listen, can we appreciate the silence? Because if God's being silent, because we're actually where we're supposed to be. Is that okay? Hey, I'm American, and you know what that means. We're allergic to silence. You know that. (laughs) Sit on any train, you'll know better. But I remember my grandmother used to say, if you can't improve upon the silence, don't. What if we can get to that place where we can really just appreciate God for that. last concept in that. In Zephaniah 3.17, it tells us about a God who delights in us, rejoices over us with singing, but it's the middle one that stands out right now. So it says he quiets us with his love. This is where we read God is mighty. He's amidst us and mighty to save. He doesn't quiet us with his words. No, there are times where you can Settle us down with His Word. There's no doubt. But I've learned as a dad, my wife tries to calm with words, and it's effective sometimes. But it's not good in the thunderstorm. But in those moments, the best thing I could do is be completely silent and hold my daughter. I'm a little nervous by whatever it is, and I can just hold her. I don't be like there, there, honey, there, there, honey, just so that she knows that I'm not freaking out. And that we're good allows her to calm down and maybe the silence is to calm us down and quiet us in his love as long as we can be confident that he thinks he is alive and he's with you if he loves you I don't think we'd have to fear his silence so would you pray with me Lord, this went longer than I anticipated. But I believe it's what we needed tonight. I need to hear this from you, Lord. And I'm so thankful that it's like I never have to see you as completely silent because I can always open your word and expect you to speak. But there are times, Lord, you know, where it just seems like as wicked as the world is around us, and even more so as I read things of the church and mass, and the decisions they make that are so contrary to your character and so contrary to your word that I see your spiritual provision in such great abundances sometimes seems so small as I watch God you make people thirsty so we can turn to you and I just pray Lord for each of us here. That just because you're quiet doesn't mean you're not loving us. And just because you're quiet does not mean you don't have a plan. And just because you're quiet does not mean we're in a place of disobedience. It is your responsibility to communicate with us. I just do pray, Lord. that if we are in if we are in some way amiss in our thoughts attitudes priorities or behavior that you would speak and that we would listen and we will trust lord that if you are not speaking in that area that you're at work whether we see it or hear it or not But I know that Elijah's power was in his ability to hear him. And there are ways you strengthened and exercised his hearing. And part of it is when things got quiet, even in the areas of provision, where he was in a place that was forced out of the bustle, where it could get so quiet that your voice would be the only thing he hears. And I know you will soon bring in Elishama, and he'll be the prophet who sees but he can't come first. And even John would say as he starts first, John, that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen and looked upon and our hands have handled. It started by hearing you. And make us people who listen. Forgive us for where we clog and clutter our ears and our minds with senseless knowledge. There's some stuff we really do need to know and there's some stuff we just don't. Make us wiser, Lord, to make moments where we really genuinely have what we would call a quiet time. And you know that if it's something really important, we single task. Make those moments consistent, regular moments where we single task. And Jesus, I know that even you, the Son of God, God the Son, would get alone, up on a mountaintop, alone, in a deserted place, and pray. Where he didn't have to fight all of the other sounds to hear you. And if that's good enough for God the Son, it should be good enough for us. Start tonight by building a lifestyle of listening with us. And faith enough to know that if we're not hearing and our hearts are obedient, you're only preparing us for the next thing you're going to say. Because up to this point, Elijah said one sentence and now you've said three. Three statements, Lord, that I know are simple for him to directly obey you. So, make us such people, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.